Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Luke, the 14th chapter, where my Bible is opened up. And I'll invite you to be finding Luke, chapter 14, in your Bible as well. We will be in the Gospels primarily this morning, looking at those words of Jesus as we begin the month of June with another installment of our preaching theme for the year. Luke, the 14th chapter, is where that's going to begin today. It is great to see you all this morning. So glad that you are here, especially to those of you who are visiting with us. We do have a number of guests from lots of different places. We appreciate so much your being here with us today. And just what a delight and what a joy it is for all of us to be together in this one place, under this one roof, worshiping and praising God, and at the very same time, encouraging and building one another up. I hope that you'll be back this evening at 6 o'clock as our brother Kane Atkinson will be preaching. And Kane is going to tell you about our encounter just a couple of weeks ago at a Chick-fil-A with a self-proclaimed prophet. That's right, we met a prophet a couple weeks ago. Kane's going to tell you all about that. That really provides the catalyst for the lesson this evening. And I had the opportunity to work closely with Kane on the preparation for this lesson. So I'm excited and eager to hear the things that he'll present tonight. And hope that you are as well and you'll be back at 6 o'clock. Right now, though, it is Luke, the 14th chapter, as Jesus is addressing the crowds. He says to them in Luke 14 and in verse 26, He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, sometimes we read passages like that and it kind of almost sounds like Jesus is against the whole. That Jesus is just kind of down on marriage and kids and the family. That Jesus didn't really see those things as being of high importance and high priority. After all, Jesus Himself was never married. Jesus Himself never had children. And Jesus quite regularly throughout His teaching, quite regularly emphasizes and stresses the preeminence, the importance, the significance of the kingdom of God above everything else. Yes, even including above your family. And we talk about that. And I preach that very thing. That the kingdom of God, it must come first. It must come above everything else. Yes, even including your physical family. Why? Because Jesus said so. But you know, when we're done making that point, I fear, I fear that we run the danger of making it kind of sound like Jesus is just anti-family. And I want to submit to you this morning that that could not be further from the truth. Because Luke 14, 26, it is not the sum total of what Jesus has to say about the home. In fact, I think sometimes we may forget just how much Jesus has to say about the home and about family. Which is why this morning I would really like for us to spend some time with Jesus. And that's what we're doing this year. Trying to get to know Jesus better. Spend time with Him in these pages of the Gospels. I want us to spend time with Jesus, the family man. You ever thought about Jesus as a family man? I think when we do do that, I think we're going to see just how much Jesus values the family and the home. That our Lord valued the home and He had some critical teaching about the home. The truth of the matter is, is that the home, at least the home as God would have it, it is under attack today. And I don't think that that's any surprise to any of us sitting in this room. There is much going on in our society that is warring against the family unit the way that God designed for it to be. 
And as we are trying to protect our families and build our families to be everything that God wants them to be, I'm going to suggest to you that we can get a great big dose of what we need for our families right out of those red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is, if we'll pay attention to Jesus, Jesus the Christ, then we're going to be well equipped to have a home that brings honor and glory to the Father in heaven. Let me set before you this morning three things that Jesus has done for the home, three things that will help all of us in our homes and in our families. And that's all going to begin in Matthew the 19th chapter. Would you be finding Matthew chapter 19? Because it is in Matthew chapter 19 we find that Jesus, He has established the permanence of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked the hot-button question of His day concerning the home. In Matthew 19, begin reading with me in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to Him and they tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answers that, verse 4. Have you not read? Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and that the two should become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore? God has joined together... Let not man separate. Would you please notice here that the dissolving of marriages over anything and everything, that is not a problem that began yesterday in our culture and amongst our people. No, people have always been selfish and prideful and stubborn and those attitudes have led to the downfall of marriages for centuries, really since the very beginning of time. In fact, Jesus makes that very point in the next few verses. Look in verse 8. In verse 8, Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, that's what caused all this, the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it wasn't so. That was not God's plan, verse 9. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, that individual commits adultery. What is the teaching here? What is the prevailing teaching of these verses in Matthew chapter 19? The teaching is, don't get a divorce. And if you think, boy, that seems like a pretty high bar. Don't get a divorce. If you think that's a high bar, well, you would be right about that. And in fact, that would explain exactly what the apostles said. Look at verse 10 now. The disciples, after hearing this, they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry at all. Jesus understands that marriage requires commitment. That marriage needs this kind of unfailing permanence to it. And Jesus also knew that whenever a marriage is lacking that commitment, that that relationship is never going to be as good as it could be when we are totally given to that other person. And coincidentally, Jesus isn't necessarily talking about this here, but coincidentally, do you see here that Jesus is also essentially saying that living together outside of the bonds of marriage, they used to call that shacking up, that that will never be as good as what He sets up here. That will never be as good as totally devoting yourself, being all in, fully committed. It's never going to be as good as it could be for the man 
for the woman, for any children that are born from that relationship. Nothing will ever compare with an all-in, fully committed, 100% vow to dwell together as husband and wife in the bonds of holy matrimony. Jesus knew that. Jesus taught that. And Jesus protects us in these passages from the very heartbreak that comes whenever we do not treat marriage as a permanent situation. In fact, I'd have you revisit verse 9 with me again. Look at verse 9 again. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. That, that is a high standard. One person for one life with one and only one exception? Do you see what that means by Jesus saying all of this? This means that we're going to give thought to who it is that we marry. Young people, those of you that maybe are looking down the stream of time, thinking about who you're going to marry, you're going to give some thought to that, serious, sobering thought to who it is that you marry. That means we're not going to just jump into this lightly. We're not going to just meet somebody and we're going to go off to Vegas and we're going to elope and do all of that. No. We realize... That if we jump into that, we can't just jump out of that for any and every reason that we so choose. And that means as well, verse 6, that we have been joined together by God. That this is a covenant. It's a covenant not just between me and that other person. It's a covenant between me, that other person, and God Himself who created marriage. And that that covenant, it cannot be broken or dissolved for just any and every trifling reason or excuse. It is a permanent relationship. And it is Jesus the Christ who made it that way. And by the way, this is not the only place that Jesus works on that. Would you find Matthew 5 with me? Just fall back a few chapters in Matthew. In Matthew 5, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks again in a little bit more detail about that sexual immorality thing. That one and only grounds for the dissolution of a marriage? Jesus works even to prevent that from happening. In Matthew chapter 5, I'm reading beginning of verse 27. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, let me take that a step further, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it would be better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Look at Jesus. He is addressing sexual temptation, lustful intent. Jesus is working once again, even in those verses, to establish the permanence of marriage. I read recently an author who had been hearing more and more throughout her life, she was hearing this idea that marriage is a gamble. She just kept hearing that more and more, and it just really bothered her. It's really just making her upset, the thought, this common expression. You know, marriage, it's just a gamble. Marriage is just a big roll of the dice. You never know what you're going to get when you marry somebody. And this author was really just kind of tired of hearing that stuff. And she wrote the following. She said this, she said what that implies is that implies that the success or failure of marriage is somehow beyond our control. She went on to say that that's just nonsense because marriage is not a gamble. She said this, she said, you handpicked the cards that you were dealt. Think about that. When you chose the person that you were going to marry, you handpicked 
the cards that you were dealt. Furthermore, you knew your own hand whenever you started. The strengths and the weaknesses that you brought into that marriage, and even more, you have the ability to change. I know what my cards are, and you know what? I can change those cards. She went on to say, if you're a three of hearts, you have the ability to become a king of hearts or a queen of hearts. She concluded that statement by saying, make no mistake about it, you have the ability to influence your marriage. It is your job to stack the deck. And I didn't know the lady, but I wanted to just shout amen when I read all of that. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to do that today. Instead, many times in people's marriages, if things aren't going well, somehow we didn't draw that perfect royal flush that we wanted, what they want to do is, I'm just going to fold. I'm just going to turn my cards in and I'm going to go get some new cards. Jesus says, we can't do that. That's not an option. Marriage is a permanent situation. It is a permanent institution. It is not disposable. You can't just, you know, turn it in. You're, you're in it. You're in this thing. You gotta stay in this thing. So you make it as good as it possibly can be. You devote yourself to it 100%. What all of us who are married, what we probably need to be asking ourselves right now is, am I all in? Am I fully committed to my spouse? Am I making our marriage good and strong? Because I realize that this is a permanent situation. That's what Jesus wants. And that is what Jesus provided in order to make family strong. Which brings me, secondly, to a passage in Matthew 15. Would you find Matthew 15 now? Because in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has a word for children. In Matthew 15, Jesus gives children their role in the family. Because it is there that Jesus defines what the job of kids is. And that is that the job of kids is to honor mom and dad. I need all of our young people to pay very careful attention for these next few minutes. Look with me in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, Jesus has once again kind of crossed swords with the Pharisees. And these Pharisees, they're all bent out of shape because Jesus is hes not following all of their man-made rules and traditions and ideas. And Jesus responds to that by saying, you guys need to quit elevating your traditions, putting those things above the Word of God. And in fact, I'll give you a classic example of what you're doing. In Matthew 15, he says in verse 3, Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 4, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. In the next couple of verses, Jesus then talks about how it is that they had set that commandment aside in favor of their particular traditions. And then he sums all of that teaching up in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, what you're doing by not honoring your parents, he says, you are hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All of that fierce rebuke that Jesus just pours out on these guys, it all stems right back up to verse 4, where Jesus says the problem is you don't honor your father and your mother. Somebody would maybe ask, well, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? Somebody would maybe say, and maybe kind of give a very basic definition, somebody would maybe say, well, well, it means being obedient to your father and your mother. And while I would certainly grant that obedience is part of that equation, that really doesn't entail everything about what honor is. Think about it, if the news runs a story and says, this afternoon the White House is going to give uh, Lieutenant Jones the Presidential Medal of Honor, what does that mean? Do we think to ourselves, oh man, Lieutenant Jones, he's going to get an award for his obedience. No, that's not what we think of. Obedience, yes, it figures somewhere in the equation of honor, but there is more to honoring someone than just obeying their commands. The word honor, it occurs more than 140 times in your Bible, or at least in the English Standard Version of the Bible. And it is actually translated from the same family of words where we get the word glory or glorify. It is a word that can actually denote the idea of, of gravity and being weighty. For example, think about in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about Joseph and about all of the honors that Joseph had received in Egypt. That would be kind of similar to our expression about how a military man, he was, he was buried with full military honors. There, there's a gravity to that. There's weightiness in that. Let me show you a little bit of that in the New Testament. Look in Romans chapter 1. Just notice how this word honor is used. In Romans 1, you'll notice that in this passage, honor really shares the same idea as, as worship almost. In Romans chapter 1, look in verse 21. Talking about the honor that is due God. In Romans 1 verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Do you see that? Honoring, glorifying, weighty. And in this passage, it's almost a virtual synonym for worship. This is the idea, let me just make it very simple. This is the idea of treating someone as special. That's what we're going for here. Look at Matthew again, this time in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, look in verse 57. In Matthew chapter 13, down in verse 57 of that chapter, in Matthew 13 verse 57, Jesus says this after being rejected in Nazareth. Verse 57 says, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Honor here has to do with the idea of specialness. To pay deference to. Let me plug one more passage in this connection. Go back to Romans again in Romans 12. In Romans chapter 12, and then we'll pack all this together. In Romans chapter 12, here's a great verse that really helps us to think about honoring. Really in all of our relationships, but we need to hone the application into thinking about our parents. In Romans chapter 12, look in verse 10. There Paul writes, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing Honor. Here this idea of honor means to esteem. To esteem and to accord with value. That is, I'm going to consider my brethren more valuable than myself. I'm going to put them ahead of me. I'm going to honor them. Now as I turn back to Matthew chapter 15, and I look at Jesus' words there about honoring father and mother, what exactly is Jesus going for there? Well, what Jesus means is He means that children must respect and care for and esteem and value and treat their parents as 
special. In fact, let's just focus in on that idea. Treating someone as special. You know, we honor God, don't we? Are we doing that today? On this, the Lord's Day? We've come into this place together so that we can all honor God, so that we can all treat God as special. We're singing these songs to Him. We're exalting His name in prayer. We're going to reflect and think about Him and His Son as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're honoring Him. If Jesus were to attend our assembly, what would we do? We'd be back there and we'd be holding the door open for Jesus. Be doing all kinds of things to show Him that we treat Him as special. We'd be giving Him the best seat. In fact, if He come in here and there aren't many seats available, we'd be jumping up. Hey, Jesus, sit right here. You can have my seat. We want to treat you as special, as an honored guest. That's what honor is all about. And so let me ask our young people right now. Young people, with that thought in mind, do you honor your mom and your dad? Do you treat them as special? That's what Jesus says that children are to do. Are you doing that? Are you fulfilling your role within the family? Do you treat your parents as more important than yourself? That's that Romans 12 verse 10 passage, isn't it? Outdo one another in showing honor. That is, you're going to treat mom and dad more significant than you do even your own self. That comes, listen to me carefully... That comes, first of all, with a recognition that I am not the center of the universe. I'm sorry to have to burst that bubble, young people, if that's what you're thinking. But we need to realize, I am not the center of the universe. I am not the most important person in this room. And let's just be candid, moms and dads. Sometimes, sometimes the reason that our kids struggle with this honoring others business is because we've led them to believe that they are the center of the universe. You think about the things that we do for our kids. We run for them. We fetch for them. We do for them. We give them everything that their heart desires. Put it all out there for them on a silver platter. We become to our kids many times little more than a glorified butler or chauffeur. And it's no wonder then. It's no wonder then that our children talk back at us and are rude to us, have bad attitudes toward mom and toward dad. What do we need to do, Mom and Dad? We need to curb some of that. We need to curb some of that. We need to quit putting our kids up on this big high pedestal. Would you notice, Jesus did not say, Mom and Dad, honor child. No, the passage says, Child, honor Mom and Dad. And so I'm going to ask our young people again. Young people, do you honor your mom and your dad? Do you look for opportunities Actually, even better, do you create opportunities to show honor to your mom and to your dad? Do you create those chances to treat them as special? I think about the Shunammite woman back in 2 Kings. There's an example of a woman who built a room on the side of her house for Elisha to stay in. Whenever he came and spoke the Word of God, she went to the trouble of making a room for him to show him how, how special she thinks that he is. To honor him. As he traveled, he would have a place to stay. That woman, she created the opportunity to say, Hey, you're important. You matter to me. You are weighty in my life. You are special to me. Young people, are you doing that for your mom and your dad? Yes, I realize there's Mother's Day. That was a couple of weeks ago. And yes, I realize there's Father's Day. That's a couple of weeks from now, just giving you the heads up. 
I realize those are opportunities to show honor to your parents, and, and that's all well and good, but can I ask you, what about the other 363 days on the calendar? Might there be some opportunity somewhere throughout the year to show honor and esteem and preference to mom and dad at some other point, maybe just at some random moment, to do something for them that clearly says, you are special to me. Can I just add right here that one of the very best ways, in fact, in some ways, one of the easiest ways that you can show honor to your mom and dad is by listening to them. You know, one of the most oft-repeated refrains throughout the whole story of the Old Testament is that the children of Israel, they would not listen to God, their heavenly Father. Let me ask you, is that treating someone as special when you don't pay attention to them? When you just disregard what they say? When you just let that go in one ear and right out the other? When you don't actually stop and hear what they are saying? When you do not accept their counsel and their instruction? when you do not treat that person and the things that they're talking about as being of high importance, we understand that with God. God is certainly not going to be honored whenever people refuse to listen to Him. Young people, you listen to your mom and dad. When mom and dad speak, do you give their words gravity and heft and weight in your life? Do you esteem the counsel and the advice that they offer? That you know what? They know what they're talking about. I'm going to listen to them. Do you respect, furthermore, their rules and the instruction that they provide for you? What I want to know, actually what Jesus wants to know, is do you treat your mother and your father in such a way that just says, I honor you? In fact, I'd have you know that Jesus didn't just command that. Jesus did that. Would you find John 19, please? In John 19, this is maybe the example for all time of what it means to honor parents. In John chapter 19, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we read in verse 25, In John 19, verse 25, that standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Then He said to that disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. I am in awe of this text. Jesus honored his mother. In the midst of everything else that was going on, dying for the sins of all of mankind, the incredible physical torture and suffering that was racking his physical body, in the middle of all of that, Jesus stops everything and he treats his mother as special. He makes provisions and He honors her. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that what that son did for his mother, that then blazes the trail for every son and every daughter today to do the same for their parents. Certainly, we're going to do that in their old age when they need others to care for them. We're going to take care of that. 
But that happens even now. Young people, that happens even right now while you are even in the hole. Children must respect and esteem and honor father and mother. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus modeled. That is what Jesus provided for the home. That children would know their role within the family. Which brings me now to this third and final observation this morning. And that is that Jesus has also done some things in the home, not just for husbands and wives, not just for kiddos, but Jesus has also done something for parents. And what Jesus has done is Jesus has, oh, there we go, Jesus has outlined that the job of parents is to lead their children to God. You know, there's so much about being a parent that can be confusing, especially when you're a first-time parent, and you don't exactly know, what am I supposed to do here? And here's all these things, I'm trying to figure it all out. Well, Jesus just kind of distills everything down to, if you don't get anything else, you better get this one thing. Your job as a mom or as a dad is to lead your child to God. In Matthew chapter 18, in Matthew chapter 18, I want you to notice how Jesus really just kind of goes out of His way to express the love and the concern that he has for the well-being, and I think especially for the spiritual well-being of children. In Matthew chapter 18, begin with me in verse number 1. In Matthew 18, verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus uses this little child here to kind of perform a, an object lesson about humility. And certainly there's lots that we can learn from that. And we talk about how we need to become like little children. And that's all very important. But watch how Jesus pushes further in talking about children. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But, verse 6... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Anybody else catch that there? Jesus is saying, essentially, don't foul kids up. Don't cause kids to stumble. In fact, Jesus keeps going with that theme. Press on down, look in verse 10. Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these Little ones, he's still talking about kiddos. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 12 now. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, more than over the ninety and nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus loved children. And while Jesus in this passage never specifically calls out mom and dad by name, it is clear that by implication Jesus is outlining what mom and dad's primary, most important job is within that home and family structure. And that is that parents must lead their children to God. That what matters most is that kids do not end up in Sin, that's there in verses 5 and 6. That children do not be led astray. That parents do not do anything that would form some kind of a barrier between those children and the Father that is in heaven. And why? Because God wants kids to grow up and not just be our children, 
But God wants kids to grow up so that they'll be His children. It is not God's will, verse 14, that any child should perish. God wants them all to come to Him. And I think we, we pay lip service to that idea. We sing that song sometimes with our kiddos. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And you know what? That's true. I believe that and I think all of us believe that. But what we sometimes forget is that those little children, they grow up. And there's going to come a day when they reach an age of accountability. And when that day comes, God wants them to obey His gospel. And when that time comes, what the Lord wants to know from you, mom or dad, is whether or not you have done your job in shepherding that child. Whether or not you have planted and watered and cultivated that seed of faith in the hearts and in the lives of your child. And let's just tell the truth about that. That is getting harder and harder to do today. I don't know... 150, 200 years ago, when everybody lived out on farmland and in pastures and did farm kinds of work. I'm sure that there was stresses that went along with that. I'm sure that there was worries and things that kept their minds occupied. I wonder if the locusts are going to come and tear up the crops. I wonder if we're going to get enough rain this season. I'm sure there was plenty to occupy people's attention back then. But, but nowadays... Nowadays, it just seems that more than ever, there's just so much going on. So much that is occupying our minds and our attention. So much that is happening in our lives, which means so much that is happening in our kids' lives. You think about just on top of the seven hours or so that they spend every day at school, and then all the homework after school, the studying and preparing for tests, working on science fair projects, and all that stuff related to academics, that occupies a lot of time. Then there's all the extracurriculars that get piled on top of that. All of the sports. And there's a zillion of those sports. And then there's band, and there's choir, and there's drama team, and there's practices and rehearsals, and there's dentist appointments, and there's there's checkups that have to be done, and there's sleepovers and hangouts with their friends, and we're running them here, and we're galloping them over there, and we're taking them to this, and we're doing that. And in the middle of all of that, we have to ask, what often gets lost in the shuffle? Well, sometimes what often gets lost in the shuffle is job number one. Teaching them about the Lord. Serving God. Doing what's right. He says, well, you, you, you know, we had a ball game and so we couldn't be there for Bible study Wednesday night. You know, we haven't done any Bible reading together as a family lately because I'll tell you what, Johnny's been really focused for the last couple of weeks on putting this science fair project together. All those big styrofoam balls, you got to make them rotate around the sun. Well, you know, I, I know that little Susie, I know she's big enough to she can sit up in church, but now she's, she's kind of sleeping in church. She's eight or nine years old and she's still sleeping in church. But you know what? We've gone so hard all week long. We've just done so much. Hey, we ought to be glad she's just here. Is it possible, mom and dad, is it possible that we have sinned against our children? And that is a sobering thought. To sin against your child. Is it possible that we have sinned against them by valuing things of a temporal nature above the kingdom of God? Is it possible that by doing that, that we are leading our children astray? 
We are leading them to fall in love with the things and the activities of this world so that someday what's going to have to happen is somebody's going to have to leave the 99 to go chase after the one because we as the shepherds right now of our children, we didn't do what we should have done. We didn't teach them. We didn't model for them. We didn't show them that Jesus Christ is what life is really all about. You know, it's so easy that whenever we talk about that, whenever we make this particular point about leading children to the Lord, it's so easy for that discussion to just kind of center squarely and entirely on this building. We think that what that means is that means you bring your kids to church. And I want to say, it is important that you bring your kids to church. They need to be here. They need to be here for worship services. They need to be here for Bible studies. They need to be here for all the activities of the local church. I get that. That's important. But you know what? That is not the sum total of Christianity. Coming to church, being here, that's just the start. That what we do in this assembly, it is the start of everything else that we do throughout the remainder of this week and throughout the remainder of our lives. Our job is to instill within our kids a desire to serve the Lord, not just on Sunday, but at all times, in every place and in every situation. That yes, we're going to follow and do what Jesus says on Sunday, but we're also going to follow and do what Jesus says on Tuesday when we're down at the ball field. Or on Thursday when we're sitting in the classroom. Or on Saturday when we're hanging out with our friends. That His agenda, His things, it's going to guide everything that we do, every choice that we make, and every single step that we take. That is the noble task to which God has called us to as moms and dads. And if we are going to fill and rise to the challenge of that role in the way that Jesus wants it to be done, then mom and dad, there has to be something more important in our hearts than just the temporal success that comes with academics or the temporal success that comes with sports or getting our kids into the right college or being promoted at work or having lots of money. We need to be wearing ourselves out. And we need to be wearing ourselves out for the Lord to help our children understand the primacy of the kingdom of God. That has to be most important in our hearts before that's ever going to be able to be passed on to our children and for it to be first and foremost in their hearts. Now, as I take a step back, I step away from the Gospels for a moment. For me... I'm really just impressed, and I'm going to just be honest with you, that for the longest time, I probably have kind of downplayed just how much Jesus has said and just how much Jesus has done for the family. I could always rip those verses off to you, like Luke 14, 26. Whoever does not, you know, hate father and mother and brother and sisters and all those I could quote that still for you just like that. But I must tell you that these passages and these concepts I've never given nearly enough attention, attention to. And notice just how much Jesus cared for and valued the home. Jesus does that. Jesus provides that so that families can be strong, and they can be whole, and they can be everything that God wants them to be. Because really what Jesus has done is He has set up a plan for the home where family doesn't interfere with the kingdom of God. Instead, when we do things like Jesus says... What happens is, is those family ties and those family bonds, it actually draws us even deeper into the kingdom of God. It immerses us in God's things, in God's ways, and it draws us closer and closer 
to that great home that we hope to be at in heaven someday. Perhaps there is someone here this morning who is ready and realizes that they need to take a very important step in that direction. By obeying the gospel and yes, being added to the family of God. It is certainly a blessing that God does give us physical, flesh and blood families that we have that help us in our sojourn here upon this earth. Those are all wonderful blessings that the Lord has given to us. But I'm going to tell you, none of those things even really compare at all to the blessing of being in God's family. To know God as your Father, Jesus as your elder brother, to have spiritual siblings in the Lord who will love you and encourage you, and you in turn can love them and encourage them as we make that journey toward the heavenly home. Don't you want that? I want that. By God's grace and His mercy, offered and poured out to you this morning, you have the opportunity to have that. If you will repent and turn from your sins, and if you will be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, do what Acts 2 and 38 instructs. You can become a Christian, and the Lord will then add you to His family. He'll adopt you into His family. You'll begin to know the joys of being in God's family. Brother or sister, let me extend a special invitation to you as well. It may be that you have brought shame to the family name. The name that you wear is the name of Christ. And that carries with it great responsibility. Are you living up to that responsibility and those expectations? If not, if maybe through careless and sinful living, you have brought reproach upon that name, you have hurt the family, then you have an opportunity right now as well. It's an opportunity to repent, to turn away from whatever it is that's led you astray, and to seek God's forgiveness in prayer. And if we can pray with you and encourage you and lift up your hands in whatever way, we're ready to do that as well. If there's anyone here this morning who needs assistance in responding to the gospel of Christ, why don't you make your way down front right now while we stand and while we sing.